Running my race, running my race till I'm one of the all-time greats. Skate, running my race, running my race till I'm one of the all-time greats. Wait, wait, wait. Running my race, running my race till I'm one of the all-time greats. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Paradisos, where if you change your thoughts, you can change the world. That is right. That is right. My name is Dennis. For those of you joining us for the first time, and today we have a very special guest uh, introducing here for Paradisos for our series, our new series we introduced a few weeks ago for um, Trading Thursdays. I hope you guys are enjoying it. We have a lot more traders coming. Uh, shout out to trading experts, man. None of them would be here if it wasn't for them. Uh, so please, everyone, welcome uh, Philippe Neiman. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on here. <laughs> for sure, for sure. All right. So, I mean, let's let's just jump right in. We have a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, trading one being one and one very special thing that I'm pretty excited to be talking about. I'm not going to mention it, but I mean, let's let's just jump right in. Uh, can you tell us what 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 first got you interested in the market? Yeah. So, uh, actually. Um, I would say money. <laughs> Everybody's like most. Yes. The main reason people get into uh, finance or any type of trading in the beginning, I started as a finance major in college um, and I was working um, at FTI, so Franklin Templeton Investments, for um, a little while here. And I was uh, mostly just spreading comps and uh, doing kind of busy work for them in their private equity uh, desk. But I got into specifically the trading world because one of the um, basically one of the CFAs there, one of the, the main guys was trading options on his, on his, uh, it's kind of like a side thing. Right. And I got really interested in it based on, you know, seeing his performance and seeing how professional he was doing right. it. Um, and I, I got interested in it. Um, and that's, and then obviously I knew nothing back then. I was <laughs> very, uh, very dumb kind of kid in terms of, um, the trading world, but, and I did make a lot of mistakes, but I joined trading experts about a year later uh, after making many mistakes, but um, and uh, they really helped me uh, grow, definitely grow into um, hopefully I can call myself a professional trader today. So nice. nice. So can you uh, remember your first trade? And if so, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So um, my first trade was uh, something that Dollar Bill would call an I'm not uncertain trade <laughs> or a uh, definitely a prom night promise. So uh, if anybody knows what I'm referring to, uh, it is just the tip. Yeah. So um, <laughs> what what I mean by that is I was um, I was talking to some of the directors at this company called Seabay mm -hmm. and um Basically, they were discussing how excited they were about getting their new product launched and approved by the FDA. Okay. And uh, you know, I'm looking at this, and it was, in my opinion, you know, a cheap stock for a dollar, about a dollar, dollar fifty or something right. like that, in early 2016. And I was, um, it caught my attention. I was like, oh my god, I can afford this stock, right? So I bought um, about, I'd say. Two, $300 worth of share. And I was just like, oh, let's see what happens here. And based on what they had told me now, I did nothing illegal. I didn't have any insider information or anything like that. It was, you know, kind of a information type of trade. And I, I took that at about a dollar, dollar sixty or something like that and pulled it for about six months. And then it hit like four to five dollars. So 
that got me hooked like you couldn't imagine because you know quadrupling your money or tripling your money in that short period of time is someone's uh mostly some people's dreams there but Obviously, it's not a get-rich-quick kind of gig, and I learned that very quickly with my next trades. So, so wait, before you continue, so sorry to interrupt, yes. but it's just like no, 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 the fact that you were, you were just starting to trade, how did you have the patience to even hold it for five to six months? Usually, when people even see it just move a yeah. snidge, they'll sell it right away and then not expect it to keep moving. So how did you know to have that patience to hold it for that long? Well, uh, that's a, a good question. Basically, um, like I said, I was working on a P desk okay. at um, a, an investment firm and most of our clients are holding positions for years. And in my opinion, like I'm investing in this, seeing where it can go, right? And the fact that it was a dollar sixty for me was like, oh, low risk, right? right but right, right. literally, no. <laughs> <laughs> you in the butt a little bit later on so um about that cheap and i was like i'm gonna hold it see what happens here uh it went up i was ex got excited um and um i had also brought out a couple friends with me on this trade i was like oh invest in this you know be good we were all holding it all kind of like discussing should we sell here I'm like no, no let's just wait until a little bit you know yeah, yeah, um yeah. so we waited until about four or five dollars and i remember selling around there now today i uh, actually went to like 13 bucks you know, I ended up going to there, but you know, whatever. I, I couldn't, I could not have known or did not have the knowledge to be able to, uh, or the skill to be able to trail a stop or move a position uh, to see it grow. And uh, definitely, uh, definitely would not take a trade like that again today. Right, right. So, how did you um, come across trading experts? Uh, good question. So, um, actually, um, I was just scouring search at social media, not investing. I was following a bunch of investment profiles and all of a sudden um, get this thing about trading experts and they had a lot more followers than all the other like guru finance guys on there mm -hmm. on Instagram. So followed them and then they posted a trade on their uh, like a like a, uh, a chart, right? And it was the first time as I was kind of using a, using chart patterns to trade. Right. And I, um, they, that ticker caught my attention and uh, the ticker is the, the name of the, of the stock, right? So yeah. I punched it into my little Robinhood account plugged it in, bought a few shares, and that thing went up. And I was like, all right, these guys are gods. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta start following them. So I started following them, and then uh, it, they posted a story that said, you know, on their Instagram, and said, okay, well, you can come follow us and um, join the group chat. So I joined the Getting Started group chat, started very, uh, what we what Ben calls, uh, and Shay called dumb money, right? Yeah, so yeah. I was working in uh, the investment world in the beginning, I honestly thought I knew a lot. <laughs> Little did I know I did not. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a huge difference between uh, in analysis uh, in the financial markets and uh, actually trading. And um, the main difference is the psychology and uh, about that. So, so, I so learned go ahead. What was that? Through them basically being able to to control your emotions with trades. And that's so how's your experience been with trading experts? You know, Ben being the hard ass that we know he is, and you know, Shake just always busting out crazy information and crazy shakedowns. You know, how how's your experience mm -hmm. been throughout? Um, so when I first started with um trading experts, it was difficult for me to um not be like like Oh, I know this, you know, I can do this. And, and I was, and then Ben actually, you know, shut me down a couple of times. He was like, no, you don't know shit. You gotta, you gotta calm down here, boy. So, uh, and Ben is kind of the, the card ass, you know, he's mm -hmm. tough love a little bit and he likes to, you know, make sure that people understand. And actually it's a great thing. And back then maybe I was like, you know, oh, who's this guy I think he is, you right, know, right. but, but, um, 
it's actually the best way to teach in this situation because a lot of people think they know a lot about the market when they get in and they don't know anything. And, uh, it's very, and, and the way people trade is different and they trade on a very specific way that is um, generally prof, extremely profitable for people that you know want to invest and want to build a financial future. And Ben is just trying to help. He's just trying to make sure that people don't give up on that. And if you do give up, it's because you're gonna find excuses in the future not right. to do so. Right. And that's his way of being like, you want to learn or you don't, right? So get on board or don't. And I think that's an excellent way to get people started and get people stick and actually make a future out of this or, you know, build a financial future like they want to. So, so you it's a great way. Shake is, on the other hand, is more like, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Okay. So Shake is, on the other hand, is more like a, you know, a softie. He's just yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's trying to, he, he tries to be nice to the new guys. Yeah. And uh, it's great too. You know, it makes, it makes it the, the process a little bit easier. You got a bad, bad cop, good cop kind of thing going on here. So and what, what I love is that, you know, you're going in expecting like to learn which you are, but it's like, you get Shake, the nice guy. Hey, what's up, man? And like, Ben, like, you're like, oh, happy. Oh, cool. This is a nice program. And then Ben was like, yo, what are you doing? Like, no complaining. Let's go get your act together. Let's let's get this shit done. And you're like, oh, 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 okay. All right. Exactly. It's like, you get your emotions are all over the place. Exactly. So, exactly. It's that tough love, you know, um, soft love kind of kind of uh, relationship they have going. And it's I, I think it's great. Absolutely. So uh, you how did you get into the hedge fund industry? OK, so um, uh, well, that's a long story. So basically, um, I was looking to take my trading to the next level. And um, I made a lot of mistakes doing that as well uh, before I joined the hedge fund and I actually started a real career in this. But I joined a, what we call a prop firm, okay? And uh, actually, I think Ben and Shake had a similar experience. I did, uh, they specifically told me not to do this. And it's crazy that, is that you mentioned it because I was literally just about to ask you after <laughs> this question, you know. Consistent with my trades, with trading experts on my own account. <laughs> sorry the, the the connection was a little bad but like i was saying that it's crazy that you mentioned it because i was literally just about to ask you you know that you yeah. worked in the same prop firm as them when they told you not to so go ahead <laughs> yes so i did not know that they worked for the actual same prop firm all i knew was that there they had worked in a type of shop like this and um trades and consistency mostly on my own account. The little that I know that a le an extremely leveraged account is risky and dangerous. And it's not about making, you know, a hundred grand in, in a few days. It's about surviving. And um, I learned that mostly from that experience. But I could say, oh, it was, it was a bad decision. And I could, you know, kind of crutch myself with this. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it gave me an immense opportunity that I definitely don't regret making that decision. Today, traders or a prop trading desk. I do not recommend it unless you see specific profitable trades. And a leveraged account is not a good way to go. You're basically borrowing money to increase the amount of buying power you have with very little risk that you can take because of an initial contribution that you have to make. Right. If you make that initial contribution and lose it, you're done. Um, so very, very risky way to go. The, the only reason I got to get out of this situation and, you know, make a career out of it was because one of 
was a very successful hedge fund manager. Um, the guy I met there basically was seeing that I was one of the only guys actually making a living out of this. And he recruited me out and said, you know, we're, we're, we're moving out. Um, basically this kid was there because his father wanted him to, um, gain some experience in the trading world. Um, and after he got out, you know, they, they basically brought me in and, um, I've been trading for them since. So, and it's been more like a career thing more than a, you know, let's get rich quick kind of, kind of deal. So you basically like while working at the prop firm, you basically, basically leveraged it to get a job at a hedge fund. That's exactly right. So using that experience and using the fact that I was consistent with my trades, being able to survive basically, because that's the only thing that matters in a prop shop is being able to uh, survive. It's not about making money. If you think you're going to get rich quick or make a living off of prop trading, you're probably dead wrong unless you're some kind of very, very experienced trader uh, professional. So uh, I use that experience to be able to get a uh, a real job. <laughs> All right. So, sorry if I'm, if I'm a little, little delayed, but it's just the connection, but we'll, <laughs> it's okay. it's we'll okay. work with it. We'll work with it. Uh, so, um, what are some fears? What are some of your fears when you first started trading? Uh, you know, my fears when I, I'd say like when I look back at, uh, the first trades I made, you know, the one we talked about, I, I didn't really have any specific fears. I obviously losing money sucks, right. but I was seeing, like I said, I was seeing it more like an investment than like, Oh no, I'm losing $5. Right. Cause I only put a couple hundred bucks into it. Right. Uh, when I started, you know, adding more funds, it did get a little bit more stressful. It helped me out to separate money from my emotions because you have to run this like a business. If you're going to trade, it has to be a business. You have to be emotionally detached from each trade. It is a get in. If it works out, great. Follow the game plan, get out. If it doesn't, if you're wrong, get out. It's it's not about, oh my God, I lost this much. I have to um, make it back or anything like that. It really is uh, about being able to control your emotions. So I think the f fear part of it um, was not as impactful as maybe some other traders have, uh, because I was, uh, with the trading experts group. And do you have any fears now, more or less? Uh, since it's not my money anymore, <laughs> I, it's not as fearful, um, other than maybe my job, but, uh, but basically, um, basically, yeah, I mean, obviously you're, you're, you're playing with client money. You're playing with other people's money. Now it's people's life savings. Um, it's different, but the psychology stays the same, right? Even if you're, whether you're playing with $10,000 or you're trading with 2 billion, it comes to the same kind of situation. It's just a percentage game and it's surviving. So it basically doesn't entail, entail fear. It just, it's more about growing and being mentally more strong than you were before, whether it's like you said, with 10,000 or with two with $2 million, whether it's yours or with client money. Exactly. If you start off with 10,000 and you're fearful, you have too much money. If you're starting, if you're, if you're fine with $10,000 and you're doing good, and then all of a sudden you, you got, you, you end up with a hundred thousand dollar account and you start being fearful, you're trading too much money for your own, for your own psychology. You have to be able to detach yourself completely from that. 
And and that's what I think people need to understand when it comes to trading that you not only have to be humble uh, about, you know, what you have, but you also have to understand that the mentality of trading with 10,000 versus 100,000 should always be the same. The philosophy, the game plan should always be the exact same way. Exactly. Uh, It shouldn't change at all. Your mentality should remain the same, whether you're playing with $500 or $500,000. I know it. percentage doesn't matter in the end so were you more greedy in the beginning or were you more patient mm, <laughs> definitely more greedy um i oh in in the first trades i was making i didn't know what i was doing so i was investing right i was thinking oh long-term investment i was i would say um more patient but then when i actually started actively trading these um when i started actively trading these these my account basically on uh, these multiple trades a week, I was taking money way too quickly. I was uh, being greedy and um, and because uh, I wanted to basically, you know, like, oh, I, I lost $50 today. I'm going to try to make 100 today, uh, the next day. So um, that mentality kind of steps in and you have to also be able to detach yourself from that. You have to be able to say, okay, well, this was my original game plan. I'm sticking to it. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work in my favor and most of the time it won't. Right, right. <laughs> but you have to be able to say that. So what has helped you be more patient with your winners? Ooh, um, I mean, following the game plan is definitely the number one thing. You have to have a set of rules. If you don't, you're basically shooting yourself in the foot. You're basically acting on your own emotions where they're having a written down game plan. If you, you're gambling. Right. Because if you don't have a game plan, it's it's the rolling dice and we're not not a casino here. This is your money that you want to invest that you worked hard for. It would be stupid to just gamble it away and not have a game plan. Exactly. So uh, what are one of your best trades? Well, till this till this day, what what do you would you consider one of your best trades? Um, Are we talking percentage wise? Are we talking dollar amount here? (laughs) <laughs> uh, uh, let's do dollar amount. Telling you, man, nothing can see that. Nothing can beat that one. That one trade. That one was. But that that dollar. That four times. You know the amount here. But um, again, the only reason that worked out is probably because of information. I would not recommend anyone taking anything under thirty dollars. You're ba- you're basically buying. S- shit that nobody wants right right? so don't buy stocks below a certain amount of money expensive stock get more expensive cheap stocks get cheaper so um but the model that's the model so in terms of dollar amount um um, amazon was a big winner for me um i was able to, to get in and get out of amazon multiple times especially this year with um their extreme growth um, speaking of which, I actually just got stopped out of Amazon today and uh, booked quite a good, uh, quite a good amount. And it's funny to, to to think like you got stopped out and you're happy about it, but yeah, yeah. I, you know what? I had my game plan. My stop was set below that. Oh, well, I had moved my stop from my entry, and I was able to book a pretty significant amount of profit on that. So, um, yeah, I mean, dollar amount, being able to. Uh, thousand two hundred thousand dollars on a on a, after you know i used to for we rewind like a year and a half ago i was trading a 
$25,000 account. So it's, it's, it's a huge, it was a huge move for me. So, uh, it's, it's, it's great that you mentioned, uh, being happy that you got stopped out. How long did it take you for you to understand, to trust your game plan and then the game plan working, but knowing that it could have gotten, you know, it, it could have been better. The situation could have been better. Your trade could have been better if you weren't really stopped out. Like how, how long did that take you to so, really understand that? Yeah. So, uh, being able to understand, and, and it comes back to being able to separate yourself from, from, um, the emotions, right. Um, and sticking to the game plan. And, and the reason I was able to do so is I have to give shout outs to trading experts for this. I've been in shake here, uh, being able to show me hat that, this is a business. This is, you know, you, you, you set your game plan up, you get out, you need to be happy when your trades work out, <laughs> you know, not, not basically count, be counting pennies. Stuff you're going to get out. Awesome. So I want to sort of like switch topics a little bit. And I mentioned in the beginning that we were going to not only speak about trading, but something else. And I'm kind of excited about this. So let's get a little bit into watches. I know you're, uh, <laughs> I know you're a really big watch guy. Ben told yeah. me, Ben told me a little bit about you and your watches. So My he, yeah. So he said, uh, you flip Rolexes somehow. So, I mean, let, let's get into a little bit oh, of that. Yeah. For sure. For sure. So, um, I first started flipping watches. I was, um, this is back in college. I was, um, bartending at this bar and this guy walks up and I've always admired Rolex watches. I've, I've liked them. I just didn't know anything about them. This guy walks up to the bar, puts down his keys on the counter and he walks up and he's got this beautiful, beautiful, solid gold, um, Submariner. And today I know it's a, it's a 1680 in yellow yellow gold and with a blue dial and uh, it's a very rare vintage watch but i recognize that it was nice and to this day this guy is one of my best friends um shout out to jt uh, <laughs> but basically um we started flipping rolex watches um from there on he he befriended me and he became sort of like a mentor to me and um we the first watch i flipped was a um 1675 Rolex uh, GMT in Pepsi dial, uh, so Pepsi bezel. Um, I'm not sure if everybody knows what those are, but they're basically uh, the GMT from Rolex uh, from about the 1970s, early 1970s. Um, so I got into vintage wa Rolex first. Um, but basically being able to see the value in something that's so beautiful and, and has so much history and being able to turn it around and make some money on it is just a great thing. Dang, that's, that's, that's amazing. So where do you really see the luxury watch industry going in the future? <laughs> it's, uh, it's a tough question cause that's like speculation prediction, right? right but, right, right. Um, right now a lot of people are thinking, oh, like, there's a huge bubble going on right in, in the, in the watch. Brands like Rolex or Patek Philippe or Le um, Chamier, and these these brands obviously have a marketing like goal here to decrease production and increase and, and basically by increasing demand and increasing prices. Um, I don't know if it's going to be, you know, this bubble is going to end, but as long as people 
still want the watches. And as long as there's not a lot in the market out there, it's going to remain that that way. So I think it was a great thing that that, that Rolex and, and these other companies did was basically lower that supply and um, making it a prestigious thing, right, by increasing those prices. And it's kind of a crazy thing you'd think, well, well if the price increases, then that decreases demand, right? right. It's actually the opposite in this case because it is a luxury item so it's about status and and being able to kind of show it off jeez and i mean before i continue i just love the fact that you you keep answering my question but sort of mentioning what my next question is going to entail which is awesome so you mentioned bubble and <laughs> you might have explained it but you, it got cut off a little so what does really bubble what does bubble mean in the luxury watch industry uh well in in any type of industry, even the market, you, we could have said that the Bitcoin, there was a bubble, right? right, right. Uh, there was a tulip bubble back in the 1800s or 1600s, something like that. Um, you know, there was a dot-com bubble. Bubbles are basically um, an increase in demand that is kind of super massive, right? And then not realizing that there's actually no value, right? Because a bubble ends up bursting all the time. And if it does burst, then uh, everybody ends up with valueless stuff, okay? Um, I don't think necessarily the watch industry is in a bubble. I think it's more so about being able to see how many people actually have watches and don't. If all of a sudden you you uh, find yourself and everybody around you starts wearing Rolex watches or has Rolex watches or has a shop day, then yeah, it might be a bubble, right? Uh, it's about supply demand. Uh, and like I said, it's great that you keep mentioning certain things that lead to my next question. So is Richard Mill watches in a bubble right now? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so the question was that is uh, the Richard Mills watches in a bubble right now? Oh. Okay. Um, I'm not a huge Richard Mille fan, um, but Richard, I have to give it to them. Richard Mille make, makes very unique and exceptional movements. Um, and I'm I sorry, mean, sorry to interrupt. I just love how I just butchered the yeah, heck out of that name. You're fine. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Mille, yeah. So basically, um, Richard Mille was one of the first. Um, I'd say increase the prices of the watch by like 40, 50% and decrease production by like 70%. Um, that was kind of crazy and, you know, unforeseen before, but now today everybody thinks these watches are like these amazing unlimited, they're, they're all limited edition watches. Right. And, um, what that designer did was kind of an, a groundbreaking thing. Is Richard Millet a bubble? Here's what here's what I think. Walk around and see everybody wearing them. Then obviously everybody has them, right? So maybe everybody has a bunch of useless stuff, mm -hmm. except that not everybody has a Richard Millet. And the best way to kind of see that is if you go to like a trade show, like if you go to like a trade show and you you notice just the dealers there, right, that are kind of showcasing their watches, and you just see a bunch of Richard Millet in their boxes, and every dealer seems to have Richard Millet, and nobody walking around has them, then you know that you can deduct from that that through the dealers, and nobody, no consumers actually, that's not the case. Right now, people are 
people that actually can get their hands on them are keeping them, which is making it because they love them, making it very difficult for other people to get them. And because they only make th about 30 models every time they come out with one, uh, it makes it very hard you know, for the world. So it makes it very hard to get one, um, which is why I don't think necessarily it's a bubble. Like I said earlier, it is a status thing. Uh, bubbles are not necessarily. Uh, oh my God, I have two thousand. That's not a status thing. Whereas Eli Shahmine, the fact that you paid that price is some sort of a status. So I think they're not necessarily in a bubble until you start seeing a bunch of dealers having them and nobody wearing them anymore. So, I mean, now that you mention it and sort of explain that, couldn't just like any any old schmo or any average Joe create a watch company, right? Make it look like a beautiful watch, only create 20 of them, each model like how Richard, Richard Millet does and sells, sell them for $15,000, $20,000 each and then be successful and, you know, never be in a bubble in a way? Well, actually, Richard Millet starts about around $70,000. And they range from about, usually they, they should go second market starting about $150,000 to about $2 million. So uh, yeah, that, that sounds a little crazy, right? But the thing is, is that those people can, the people that can buy those can afford them and they can afford to keep them, not necessarily resell them because they want to keep them. So um, it's, it's, I know it sounds a little crazy to be able to, to say like, well, that's not a bubble, but until dealer Nobody, until that happens, it's not going to be in a bubble because if you're, you would be lucky to find maybe 10 Kishak Mide in a, in, in, a, in a trade show right now with 250 plus dealers. Um, and that's, they're rare, right? They're hard to get, they're rare, they're expensive, and they have status. And you see someone wearing one, you notice it. Uh, I was actually at the Equinox gym here in uh, on Fifth Avenue earlier this week, and I saw one of this, these guys wearing one, and um, you know, I said, "Nice watch," and he was like, "Thank you." And he's like, "I actually get a lot of compliments about it." So I was like, "Well, obviously, it's a Hishamine. It's worth about." That sounds crazy. These these can afford it. So so again, I mean, can't just anyone create like a luxury watch brand? Only create ten of them, sell them for a ridiculously amount, and and then be considered a luxurious brand and never be in a bubble? They can, but like in a sense, they make such unique pieces and they make them quality, and people like that status. Technically, yeah, they could. They could basically. Uh, someone could a watchmaker could start making those watches, making them look cool, and obviously. I mean, it's, e it's definitely easier said than done, but I mean, Hey, anything yeah, is, is possible. Sure. In life, I mean, right. You have to be a watchmaker to start with that. But, All right. Yeah. So, uh, how do you spot a good deal? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, knowing your, knowing your stuff. Um, definitely before you buy a watch, educate yourself on the watch that you're buying. Um, on the model, on its history, uh, its, its previous models, if it does have previous models. Um, any specifics about that? Um, usually um, a watch that, a good deal on a watch would be something that's below its average market price, but you have to make sure that you're not getting scammed, right? It's not a fake or it's not, you know, uh, it's not extremely damaged or um, it has some faults in it, right? So. 
Um, you have to really know your stuff. So make sure you educate yourself if you're going to buy a watch for people, listeners out there. Um, but for myself, um, I just do my research. I just look look them up and I shop. I take my time. I'm not in a hurry to buy anything. So when I do look at him and I was the internet for, you know, if I have time hours and look at different types of watches and now sometimes I have a specific one I'm looking for, but if I can find something that I think is below market price, I can try to negotiate on it, get a, get a good deal, but you're never going to find in the luxury watch industry, you're never going to really find a great deal. It's always going to be about margin. It's always going to be about who's, who's the seller. Can I try to negotiate a price a little bit lower based on, on some leverage from myself? And who can I find that's going to buy this watch that is going that that's going, I'm going to make a profit on it, right? I mean, and I'm, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it kind of sounds like you can use that same sort of in a way you could use that same information in trading, right? You know, trying to find a good deal, trying to find good stocks and stuff like that. In a sense, yeah. Um, I mean, we always try to say, and, and Ben will repeat this over and over: don't try to find cheap stocks at a discount right. because if they're at a discount, it's because nobody. In a, you want to be able to buy it technically high, right? Just like a luxury watch brand, you're buying this high, right? And being able to sell it higher. Um, that's kind of the point here. And um, yeah, it's 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 sort of like trading. And, and everything in life is kind of like trading in a sense. You can kind of every, always wrap that around because it is a very psychological and very, um, yeah, a very psychological game. I mean, I'm, in other words, I think everyone should get into trading to be able to be better human beings. I mean, why not, right? I agree. I agree. I agree. It, it kind of kind of shows, especially in, in our capitalistic society, capitalist society, um, it's the perfect competition. Stock trading is the perfect competition. It's about who survives, who doesn't. It's uh, who eats who for breakfast, right? So, um, and I think everybody should be financially savvy and be able to find be financially literate. That's super important. I mean, the fact that we don't even learn how to do our taxes when we're in high school, but we learn about the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Sounds insane to me, right? So, <laughs> uh, my, man, yes. my man is preaching right now, man. <laughs> and I think that's what Ben and Chick are trying to do with trading experts. And I think it's a great thing. So, what has been your worst flip ever till this day? There is no worst flip. You know why? Because you get, to, even if you don't, for a long period of time. So, I can't answer that question, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can you actually repeat it? Because it got cut off, and I think that that was actually. Oh uh, yeah, no problem. So um, you said there's no, no I, such thing as worst flip. There's no such thing as a bad flip because worst case scenario, if you don't find a buyer to buy your watch, you get to wear a really cool piece for for a few months or years. So I can't answer that question. Bingo. <laughs> uh, what has been your best flip? Uh, my best flip. Um, I think it. Was like 1680 um, with a yeah it was a, some Mariner Red meters first. I think we got that watch for about fourteen thousand dollars or sixteen thousand sold for about twenty five thousand uh, based on the fact that it was a kind of a, an unknown deal. And today it's going to be impossible to do this, but like four years ago, the the vintage watch industry was not what it was today. That sounds crazy because it's only four years, but there was a huge impulse and buying in the last in the last five, two to three years so in other words you got in just at the right at the right time 
yeah, we, we got it at the right time, I believe. Yeah, yeah, we definitely did. And, and we knew what we were looking for. We had a buyer already. So it was, it was easy to make that trade. So, so how do you go about, you know, buying these watches and where do you sell them and all those, all those things? Um, mostly looking for them will require you to be part of forums, uh, being able to look at forums and yeah, you look at forums, uh, keep browsing through them. Um, like I said, keep doing your research. Don't buy them from like other dealers. You're not going to get a good price because they're already taking that margin, right? Um, but you know, dealers can offer other perks like, you know, a nice experience, you know, an, uh, an, an authorized dealer from Rolex will, you know, offer you a good experience and it's, it's nice to have that little perk, but um, how I look for them, I go to on forums, I uh, look on sometimes even eBay, sounds crazy low because sometimes, yeah, these watches can, watches can be fake, but if you know what you're looking for and you know your stuff, you'll be fine. Um, just make sure you do your due diligence here. But basically, yeah, I, I look on forums, look on eBay, and uh, to find my buyer, I just post it back on the same, on this case, same kind of forums and, and the same kind of uh, platforms. So before we close out, uh Two more questions. Uh, what's the quickest way? Because I'm sure people are wondering. Um, what's the quickest way to spot a Rolex fake without it being in front of you? Is there a way? Like without being able yes. to touch it and turn the dials and such? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can. I think I can spot a fake in a few seconds just by looking at it based on the fact that I, I look at them a lot. Um, the main one I'd say is how the watch ticks. Um, a Rolex has sweeping hands and it's a very distinguishable sweeping hand and it is a very smooth sweeping hand. If it it kind of lags or it ticks like a like a, a, a watch that you put a battery in, obviously it's going to be a fake. Uh, although some vintage Rolex watches do have a little bit sometimes of a delay or uh, a hiccup in, in, in the sweeping hand. So uh, a pretty distinguishable watch, whereas most of the, wa the fake watches you see today are modern style Rolex watches so, uh, or copies, right? So um, the other way to look at it is simply the font, uh, being able to tell whether there's an issue with the sizing or it doesn't look right. Sometimes it's just about, oh, it doesn't look right. It doesn't look perfect. Um, these watches are ultra high-end luxury watches. They are perfect. There's usually nothing wrong with them, even under the microscope. They're extremely precise. Um, so in the, other words, they're more flawless than diamonds sometimes. There's, well, I don't know. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're basically almost flawless. And, and you know, they, that's why they take so long to make. Um, why they're so, they're so sought after. So if you see a Rolex watch, it doesn't sound right. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't look right. It doesn't, you know, feel right in your hands, even if you did touch it. So if the weight's not right, those are the main, the telltale signs. Um, I like to look at the, the, the bezel itself. Usually it's going to be a little wider, a little too small, or it's not going to make sense. Or even the shape of the watch or the size is important too. And like you said before, and then, and with anything in life, whether it be watches, whether it be trading, whether it be anything you want to learn, the only way to know about it is to actually go out there and do your research and find the knowledge and such. Learn about it. Learn about your stuff before you start playing. Um, you have to learn before you play. And there, or you can just try it out and learn on your own. But 
I think that's going to be a lot more expensive than learning from someone who knows what they're doing. Exactly. So before I ask my next two, last two questions, um, I don't, I'm sure you know this, but I mean, be honest if you don't. Um, when I was uh, in college a few years ago, there I was in a public sp public speaking class, and this we had to give uh, a research paper. I'm sure everyone goes through it if they have a public speaking class. Where it's basically uh, a topic and you have to do a bunch of research and then perform it and present it to the class. And I think the only one I remember that day, I don't even remember what I wrote about, but there was this guy wrote about Rolexes. And the only thing I remember he spoke about or he said about Rolexes that the creator, and I'm assuming it's true because he said it and he had information backed up uh, from it. And the only thing I remember was him saying that the creator, the inventor of Rolex, the 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 way he got the name, or the way he thought of the name was he, he he thought of Rolex to be able to say the word Rolex the same exact way in every single language. That's 100% correct. Hey. <laughs> it sounded right. Um, it sounds right, and it sounds good in every single language. That was, yep. He would he tried many different names. Um, he tried Rolco. He tried a, a lot of other, other names. But that the main, yeah, Rolex stuck because it sounded nice. It rolled well in the tongue in every language. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So uh, last two questions. Uh, favorite watch ever? Ooh. Ever. Okay. So I have my Holy Grail, which is a, um, it's a Paul Newman 6241 in yellow gold. It is, for, it's a Rolex. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll post a picture somewhere here. <laughs> It's a Rolex Daytona uh, 6241 in yellow gold. It's absolutely gorgeous. It goes for about two hundred fifty to $500,000. Man, it sounds gorgeous <laughs> just from that price. I know, it's crazy. <laughs> Not going to buy this today, obviously. But um, another watch that I really, really enjoy seeing, and it, they're super rare. I've only seen them a few times in my life, What is the Samariner 1680 in red Submariner. So it is a basically a Submariner, but it, it says it's the Submariner writing is in bright red and it's from the early 70s. So it's an absolutely beautiful watch. Um, and that will probably be my next one to keep. So. <laughs> All right. So to close out, any uh, advice that you have for, you know, young people, whether it be in life, whether it be in trading, to just, you know, help them keep their head up wherever, whenever they are, you know, they fear they're failing or they're trying to overcome something? Um, I would say ask for help. The number one thing that got me kind of where I am today or, you know, helped me get there is being not being afraid to ask for help. Learn and learn from someone that has been there through it. Most people will be glad to show you. And sometimes, you know, I have uh, kids on, on Instagram, you know, asking me stuff and I, I respond all the time. I, I, I think it's great. Um, if you can learn from, from, from a mentor that, um, can teach you the ways it's, and they know what they're doing, right. Um, it's a great tool and don't be afraid to ask. Most people are afraid to ask for pride or, you know, they're like, oh, I can do it on my own. You know, I'm a self-made man. Nobody's a self-made man. Everybody learned from someone, right? So make sure you learn from someone. I think that's the main the main uh, point here. I did that with trading experts, and I did that with watches. And I, so. I think that's just so key when it comes to life, whether it be your career, uh, you know, business, having that right mentor and being confident enough and brave enough to to look for that mentor and then act to be mentored by that person. Absolutely, and it's 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 difficult sometimes. You're right. It's, sometimes it's a pride thing, right? But ask for help. 
you're going to get it most of the time. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Philippe, thank you, bro, so much uh, for all this knowledge that you dropped on everybody on trading and on watches, man. I just want to like have a beer one day with you now that I know you live in New York and just yeah, we can catch a beer, man. Anytime. <laughs> talk Anytime. more about talk more about watches. Uh, so again, thank you, man. I really appreciate you hopping thank on. Thank you for having me here. I had a great time. Thank you so much, Ennis. Awesome, awesome. And for everyone out there, uh, be ready, guys. There's going to be a lot more uh, trading Thursdays. A lot more traders uh, talking about it. And if you guys uh, missed our last episode, check us. Check our website out, www.paradisos.world. Check out our Instagram, Paradisos Podcast. Check out our Twitter, Paradisos 101. And until next time, God bless you all, my beautiful people. Good night.